Hello and welcome to the May issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm joined by Elena Becker-Barossa from TLN. Welcome Elena. Hi Richard. Elena, let's start with a trial. This is looking at the potential of lithium in the treatment of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which we also commonly known as motor neuron disease. And this follows up a pilot study uh, done in Italy. Is that right? Yes, Richard, that's right. A previous pilot study had reported that lithium could slow disease progression, and obviously that raised high expectations, given that ALS is such a devastating illness. This is therefore an important trial by the investigators of the Northeast and Canadian Amyotrophic Lateral Sclerosis Consortia, whose results have been eagerly awaited. And Elena, remind us why ALS is such a debilitating neurological condition. ALS is a progressive neurodegenerative disease of the motor neurons, as you said, and these are the cells that control essential muscle activity. Eventually, in these patients, most of them relatively young, age at onset is usually about 40 to 60 years, the ability to control voluntary movements can be lost. There is no cure at present, only symptomatic treatment. Only one drug with modest disease-modifying potency, Rilusol, is approved for treatment. This is the only pharmacological treatment that is available and that prolongs life for a few months. And nothing else has been introduced for over a decade. And Elena, just tell us a little bit about the design of this study. This study was a randomized, double-blind control trial in which 40 patients with sporadic ALS were assigned to treatment with lithium carbonate plus rilusol, the only approved therapy that I mentioned before, and 44 patients received Rilusol plus placebo. The primary endpoint was time to death or time to reach a decrease of at least six points on a functional rating scale. And the results, Elena, these seem very clear-cut in terms of the way this trial progressed. Yes, I think so. They were indeed clear and disappointing. At the first interim analysis, when these 84 patients had been allocated treatment, the investigators decided to stop the study. The trial was a stop for futility because the evidence was enough to prove that a large effect of lithium will not be achieved. And Elena, the authors, one thing they do say, as you say, a very disappointing result, but the actual design of this study could be helpful in planning other similar type studies for drugs that are widely available. Yes, indeed. I think this is actually one very interesting aspect of this study. This is a study that illustrates how a clear result can be obtained rapidly. The investigators use a novel time-to-event design, that is, the primary endpoint was time to an event, which in this trial was decrease of at least six points in the score of a functional rating scale, as I mentioned before. The advantages provided by such design are nicely discussed by Michael Swash from the Barts and London School of Medicine and Dentistry here in London in a link commentary that accompanies this article. It was this design that allowed the investigators to assess efficacy or futility at the first pre-specified interim analysis. I believe this represents an important advance that could be applied in future testing of other interventions and hopefully this design will speed up the finding of a treatment for these patients beyond that of Rilusol. Thank you very much Elena and it seems a long time ago that we published online on March the 12th 
uh, a study by Peter Rothwell and colleagues at Oxford concerning this association between blood pressure and stroke. And this was linked to some content in the Lancet Weekly Journal of that week. But nevertheless, it is in the May issue of TLN. So can you just remind us and, and listeners what, what the thrust of this study was concerning? Yes, Richard, even though this was available online some time ago, I think it deserves a reminder. For those that did not have the chance to read this article yet, uh, they definitely should not miss it. Well, in summary, the authors used data from two large trials to investigate why calcium channel blockers reduce the risk of a stroke more than expected on the basis of mean blood pressure alone. And beta blockers are less efficacious. And they find that the reason for that is how these drugs affect blood pressure variability in every individual. It's a fascinating piece of research uh, that Peter Rothwell, the corresponding author of this paper, explained to you at the time of the early online publication of these findings in a very interesting interview. I think it's a fascinating piece of research with direct relevance to clinical practice. And this is clearly highlighted by a link commentary by Philip Gorlick that is uh, accompanies this article. Thanks very much, Elena. And good to highlight that very important study. Next, Elena, in the May issue, you have a very interesting looking review, and this is looking at the association between stroke and Chagas disease. Now, Chagas disease is an infectious disease, and we've talked about it quite a bit in one of our sister journals. I've done podcasts with colleagues from the Lancet Infectious Diseases where we've discussed it. So interesting that, that uh, Chagas disease crops up in the Lancet Neurology. So just remind us, put your infectious diseases hat on for a moment, Elena. Remind us a bit about Chagas disease. Yes, and the Chagas disease is a parasitic disease, hence of the interest of our infectious diseases colleagues. It also has severe neurological complications, which are often unrecognized. It is caused by Trypanosoma cruzi, a protozoan that infects over 1.5% of the Latin American population. It is actually the third most common parasitic infection worldwide, after malaria and schistosomiasis. And demographic and migratory changes are spreading the disease to non-endemic areas. Given its high prevalence, I think this article will be very helpful for neurologists, not only in Latin America, but also in other regions such as North America, Australia or Europe, with many immigrants from areas where the disease is endemic. So, Lena, how common is stroke then associated with Chagas disease? Well, Chagas typically causes heart disease, and this is an enormous problem in endemic regions. Chagas-related heart disease is one of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality in Latin America, and ischemic stroke is unfortunately quite common complication. In fact, as highlighted in this review, in many patients the infection is actually diagnosed after stroke presentation. So I guess, interestingly, logically following this on, Elena, that if you actually observe stroke incidents among a population at high risk of Chagas disease, then there could be implications therefore for the treatment of Chagas disease and therefore possibly a future stroke. That's right. I think this is a very relevant point for those specialists seeing Latin American patients from endemic areas. In patients with ischemic stroke who are from endemic regions, the authors of this review recommend to screen for trypanosoma infection. Nifurtimox and benznisdazole, which were introduced more than 30 years ago, are the only approved antiparasitic drugs. They have limited effectiveness and hence new drugs are urgently required. These are 
several of the topics that are covered in this very interesting paper. And Elena, did you offer anything about how stroke should be treated any differently to, if you like, conventional stroke among Chagas disease patients? Chagasic stroke is clinically indistinguishable from other causes of cardioembolic stroke. I wouldn't dare to provide any recommendations on that, but rather suggest to readers to check up this review. The review covers the important issues of treatment of ischemic stroke associated to Chagas disease and also its primary and secondary prevention in detail and discusses also the areas for which more evidence is urgently needed. Next, Elena, a review, and this is looking at prognostic indicators for traumatic brain injury, or TBI, we'll call it. How common is TBI, Elena, and what are the main clinical challenges here? Well, more than 1.4 million people are estimated to sustain TBI each year in the USA alone. Of them, it is estimated that 50,000 will die as a result of the injury. The incidence of traumatic brain injury is about 500 cases per 100,000 population each year in Europe. These figures are possibly much higher in developing countries or in regions where there are armed conflicts. So obviously this is a tremendous public health problem globally. I think that the primary ch clinical challenge here, as highlighted by the authors of this review, is how heterogeneous TBI is regarding its causes, its presentation, its prognosis. In practice, TBI is generally first assessed using the Glasgow Coma Scale, but this might not reflect the complexity of an individual patient's situation or their underlying pathology. Of course, outcome can be highly variable too, and hence trying to address prognosis in these patients is clearly very important. And Elena, can you give some examples of the kind of risk factors that the authors are looking at in formulating some of the prognostic markers here? Well, I think that the review covers mostly all possible factors very thoroughly. They include those that can be assessed at admission, from demographic factors to structural abnormalities in the brain and potential biomarkers, and also the variables that can modify clinical course, such as intracranial pressure or evoke potentials. And what do the authors conclude, Elena? They conclude that the real and urgent challenge is to implement these predictive models in clinical practice. They point out the dynamic nature of this analysis given the fast changes in the epidemiology of TBI and the need of more genomics and metabolomics data. They consider that these data are particularly important to understand why individuals respond differently to the same sort of injuries. Better standardization of data collection and coding are needed to improve this area of research. And finally, Elena, just briefly mention, if you would, a review, and this concerns therapeutic strategies for subarachnoid hemorrhage. Yes, uh, very briefly, I wouldn't like to finish without mentioning about a very comprehensive review by Rabinstein and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester on the treatment of subarachnoid hemorrhage caused by an intracranial aneurysm, a neurological emergency for which there have been notable advances over the past decades, and they are all very well covered in this paper, from the initial management of the patients in the emergency department to the treatment in the intensive care unit and also the management of medical complications. A very comprehensive review. Many thanks, Elena. Thank you, Richard. And thank you all for listening. Those are some of the highlights from the May issue of The Lancet Neurology. We'll see you next month.